Book One, Chapters Eleven and Twelve of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. The comic actor will also claim a certain amount of our attention, but only in so far as our future orator must be a master of the art of delivery. For I do not, of course, wish the boy whom we are training to this end to talk with the shrillness of a woman or in the tremulous accents of old age. Nor, for that matter, must he ape the vices of the drunkard, or copy the cringing manners of a slave, or learn to express the emotions of love, avarice, or fear. Such accomplishments are not necessary to an orator and corrupt the mind, especially while it is still pliable and unformed. For repeated imitation passes into habit nor yet again must we adopt all the gestures and movements of the actor. Within certain limits, the orator must be a master of both, but he must rigorously avoid staginess and all extravagance of facial expression, gesture, and gait. For if an orator does command a certain art in such matters, its highest expression will be in the concealment of its existence. What, then, is the duty of the teacher whom we have borrowed from the stage. In the first place, he must correct all faults of pronunciation, and see that the utterance is distinct, and that each letter has its proper sound. There is an unfortunate tendency in the case of some letters to pronounce them either too thinly or too fully, while some we find too harsh, and fail to pronounce sufficiently, substituting others whose sound is similar but somewhat duller. For instance, lambda is substituted for ro, a letter which was always a stumbling-block to Demosthenes. R, L, and R have, of course, the same value. Similarly, when C and G are not given their full value, they are softened into T and D. Again, our teacher must not tolerate the affected pronunciation of S, with which we are painfully familiar nor suffer words to be uttered from the depths of the throat, or rolled out hollow-mouthed, or permit the natural sound of the voice to be overlaid with a fuller sound, a fault fatal to purity of speech. The Greeks give this peculiarity the name katapeplasmenon, plastered over, a term applied to the tone produced by a pipe when the stops which produce the treble notes are closed, and a bass note is produced through the main aperture only. He will also see that final syllables are not clipped, that the quality of speech is continuously maintained, that when the voice is raised, the strain falls upon the lungs and not the mouth, and that gesture and voice are mutually appropriate. He will also insist that the speaker faces his audience, that the lips are not distorted, nor the jaws parted to a grin, that the face is not thrown back, nor the eyes fixed on the ground, nor the neck slanted to left or right. For there are a variety of faults of facial expression. I have seen many who raised their eyebrows whenever the voice was called upon for an effort, others who wore a perpetual frown, and yet others who could not keep their eyebrows level, but raised one towards the top of the head and depressed the other till it almost closed the eye. These are details, but as I shall shortly show, they are of enormous importance, 
for nothing that is unbecoming can have a pleasing effect. Our actor will also be required to show how a narrative should be delivered, and to indicate the authoritative tone that should be given to advice, the excitement which should mark the rise of anger, and the change of tone that is characteristic of pathos. The best method of so doing is to select special passages from comedy appropriate for the purpose, that is to say, resembling the speeches of a pleader. These are not only most useful in training the delivery, but are admirably adapted to increase a speaker's eloquence. These are the methods to be employed while the pupil is too young to take in more advanced instruction, but when the time has come for him to read speeches, and as soon as he begins to appreciate their merits, he should have a careful and efficient teacher at his side, not merely to form his style of reading aloud, but to make him learn select passages by heart, and declaim them standing in the manner which actual pleading would require. Thus he will simultaneously train delivery, voice, and memory. I will not blame even those who give a certain amount of time to the teacher of gymnastics. I am not speaking of those who spend part of their life in rubbing themselves with oil and part in wine-bibbing, and kill the mind by over-attention to the body. Indeed, I would have such as these kept as far as possible from the boy whom we are training. But we give the same name to those who form gesture and motion, so that the arms may be extended in the proper manner, the management of the hands free from all trace of rusticity and inelegance, the attitude becoming, the movements of the feet appropriate, and the motions of the head and eyes in keeping with the poise of the body. No one will deny that such details form a part of the art of delivery, nor divorce delivery from oratory, and there can be no justification for disdaining to learn what has got to be done, especially as chironomy, which, as the name shows, is the law of gesture, originated in heroic times, and met with the approval of the greatest Greeks, not excepting Socrates himself, while it was placed by Plato among the virtues of a citizen, and included by Chrysippus in his instructions relative to the education of children. We are told that the Spartans, even, regarded a certain form of dance as a useful element in military training. Nor again did the ancient Romans consider such a practice as disgraceful. This is clear from the fact that priestly and ritual dances have survived to the present day, while Cicero, in the third book of his De Oratore, quotes the words of Crassus, in which he lays down the principle that the orator should learn to move his body in a bold and manly fashion, derived not from actors or the stage, but from martial and even from gymnastic exercises. And such a method of training has persisted uncensured to our own time. In my opinion, however, such training should not extend beyond the years of boyhood, and even boys should not devote too much time to it. For I do not wish the gestures of oratory to be modeled on those of the dance, but I do desire that such boyish exercises should continue to exert a certain influence, and that something of the grace which we acquired as learners should attend us in after-life without our being conscious of the fact. CHAPTER Twelve. 
the question is not infrequently asked as to whether admitting that these things ought to be learned it is possible for all of them to be taught and taken in simultaneously there are some who say that this is impossible on the ground that the mind is confused and tired by application to so many studies of different tendencies neither the intelligence nor the physique of our pupils nor the time at our disposal are sufficient they say and even though older boys may be strong enough it is a sin to put such a burden on the shoulders of childhood these critics show an insufficient appreciation of the capacities of the human mind which is so swift and nimble and versatile that it cannot be restricted to doing one thing only but insists on devoting its attention to several different subjects not merely in one day but actually at one and the same time do not harpists simultaneously exert the memory and pay attention to the tone and inflections of the voice while the right hand runs over certain strings and the left plucks stops or releases others all these actions being performed at the same moment again do not we ourselves when unexpectedly called upon to plead speak while we are thinking what we are to say next invention of argument choice of words rhythm gesture delivery facial expression and movement all being required simultaneously if all these things can be done with one effort in spite of their diversity why should we not divide our hours among different branches of study we must remember that variety serves to refresh and restore the mind and that it is really considerably harder to work at one subject without intermission consequently we should give the pen a rest by turning to read and relieve the tedium of reading by changes of subject however manifold our activities in a certain sense we come fresh to each new subject who can maintain his attention if he has to listen for a whole day to one teacher harping on the same subject be it what it may change of studies is like change of foods the stomach is refreshed by their variety and derives greater nourishment from variety of viands if my critics disagree let them provide me with an alternative method are we first to deliver ourselves up to the sole service of the teacher of literature and then similarly to the teacher of geometry neglecting under the latter what was taught us by the former and then are we to go on to the musician forgetting all that we learned before and when we study latin literature are we to do so to the exclusion of greek in fine to have done with the matter once and for all are we to do nothing except that which last comes to our hand on this principle why not advise farmers not to cultivate corn vines olives and orchard trees at the same time or from devoting themselves simultaneously to pastures cattle gardens bees and poultry why do we ourselves daily allot some of our time to the business of the courts some to the demands of our friends some to our domestic affairs some to the exercise of the body and some even to our pleasures any one of these occupations if pursued without interruption would fatigue us so much easier is it to do many things than to do one thing for a long time continuously we need have no fear at any rate that boys will find their work too exhausting there is no age more capable of enduring fatigue 
The fact may be surprising, but it can be proved by experiment, for the mind is all the easier to teach before it is set. This may be clearly proved by the fact that, within two years after a child has begun to form words correctly, he can speak practically all without any pressure from outside. On the other hand, how many years it takes for our newly imported slaves to become familiar with the Latin language. Try to teach an adult to read, and you will soon appreciate the force of the saying applied to those who do everything connected with their art with the utmost skill. He started young. Moreover, boys stand the strain of work better than you, gentlemen. Just as small children suffer less damage from their frequent falls, from their crawling on hands and knees, and, a little later, from their incessant play and their running about from morn till eve, because they are so light in weight and have so little to carry, even so their minds are less susceptible of fatigue, because their activity calls for less effort, and application to study demands no exertion of their own, since they are merely so much plastic material to be moulded by the teacher. And further owing to the general pliability of childhood, they follow their instructors with greater simplicity and without attempting to measure their own progress, for, as yet, they do not even appreciate the nature of their work. Finally, as I have often noticed, the senses are less affected by mere hard work than they are by hard thinking. Moreover, there will never be more time for such studies, since at this age all progress is made through listening to the teacher. Later, when the boy has to write by himself, or to produce and compose something out of his own head, he will neither have the time nor the inclination for the exercises which we have been discussing. Since, then, the teacher of literature neither can nor ought to occupy the whole day, for fear of giving his pupil a distaste for work, what are the studies to which the spare time should preferably be devoted? For I do not wish the students to wear himself out in such pursuits. I would not have him sing or learn to read music or dive deep into the minuter details of geometry, nor need he be a finished actor in his delivery or a dancer in his gesture. If I did demand all these accomplishments, there would yet be time for them. The period allotted to education is long, and I am not speaking of duller wits. Why did Plato bear away the palm in all these branches of knowledge, which, in my opinion, the future orator should learn? I answer, because he was not merely content with the teaching which Athens was able to provide, or even with that of the Pythagoreans whom he visited in Italy, but even approached the priests of Egypt, and made himself thoroughly acquainted with all their secret lore. The plea of the difficulty of the subject is put forward merely to cloak our indolence, because we do not love the work that lies before us, nor seek to win eloquence for our own, because it is a noble art, and the fairest thing in all the world, but gird up our loins for mercenary ends, and for the winning of filthy lucre. Without such accomplishments, many may speak in the courts and make an income, but it is my prayer that every dealer in the vilest merchandise may be richer than they, and that the public crier may find his voice a more lucrative possession. And I trust that there is not one even among my readers who would think of calculating the monetary value of such studies. But he that has enough of the divine spark to conceive the ideal eloquence, 
he who as the great tragic poet says regards oratory as the queen of all the world and seeks not the transitory gains of advocacy but those stable and lasting rewards which his own soul and knowledge and contemplation can give he will easily persuade himself to spend his time not like so many in the theatre or in the campus marshes in dicing or in idle talk to say not of the hours that are wasted in sleep or long-drawn banqueting but in listening rather to the geometrician and the teacher of music for by this he will win a richer harvest of the light than can ever be gathered from the pleasures of the ignorant since among the many gifts of providence to men not the least is this that the highest pleasure is the child of virtue but the attractions of my theme have led me to say overmuch enough of those studies in which a boy must be instructed while he is yet too young to proceed to greater things my next book will start afresh and will pass to the consideration of the duties of the teacher of rhetoric end of chapter 12 end of book 1